Welcome to the Drug History Podcast, Series 1, Episode 6. In this episode, we are looking at drug use in ancient Egypt. If you were to ask a totally random group of people in England today what they know about Egypt, I imagine that among the top answers you would get would be the pyramids, mummies, the sphinxes, and the picturesque holiday resorts. The pyramids are certainly astounding pieces of architecture, especially when you consider the age in which they were built. Even today, when we want to emphasize scale in modern buildings, we often compare them to the pyramids. The discovery of the treasure-laden tombs of the royalty, some of whom have gained fame such as the young Tutankhamun, has also helped solidify the perception of the ancient Egyptians as having been preeminent in the science of mummification. We would expect that a people so advanced in many ways would also have a reasonable understanding of medicine and drug therapy in the context of the era. Modern research confirms this. In June last year, the United States National Library of Medicine published a review by Metwali, Gonaim, Issa, and others on Egyptian medicine. This was later published in the Saudi Journal of Biological Sciences. We are grateful for this scholarly work which has informed this episode of the Drug History Podcast. The full link to the paper is given in the episode description. The period of history we're looking at is between the years 3300 BC and 525 BC. Let's start off with a description of the state of Egyptian medicine given in the abstract to the paper that we've just described. The ancient Egyptians practiced medicine with highly professional methods. They had advanced knowledge of anatomy and surgery. Also, they treated a lot of diseases including dental, gynecological, gastrointestinal, and urinary disorders. They could diagnose diabetes and cancer. They used therapeutics derived from different plants, several animal products, and minerals. Some of these plants are still used in the present day. Fortunately, they documented their life details by carving on stone, clay, or papyri. Although a lot of these records have been lost or destroyed, the surviving documents represent a huge source of knowledge in different scientific aspects, including medicine. At this point, it is interesting if we look at a separate article from the World History Encyclopedia which indicates that the mortality rate following medical procedures in ancient Egypt was probably less than of any European hospital in the Christian era until the mid-20th century AD. And so we have the benefit of the records left by the Egyptians, the standard of which is at least as good as that of the Assyrians and Babylonians that we discussed some time back. So what do we learn from Metwali and others about the use of drugs within ancient Egyptian medicine? 
we skip over the wider references to medical practice and focus on the excerpts that relate to drug therapy in this episode. Firstly, we learn that like the Assyrians and Babylonians, ancient Egyptians did not have a clear dichotomy between both medicine and magic. They considered health and wellness to result from a person's relationship with the universe, including people, animals, good and bad spirits. We can therefore understand that the use of medicines within this context would have been strongly aligned with these beliefs. Secondly, among the early medical papyri, and by this we're looking at papers from about 1900 to 1600 BC, we find some treatments that we would frown upon nowadays. For instance, the Egyptian doctors attempted to create contraceptives by using excrement from crocodiles, and it's not easy to identify which excrement they're talking about, dispersed in honey or sour milk with a pinch of natron, and that sodium carbonate decahydrate, which was then inserted into the woman's reproductive organ. At the positive end of the spectrum, we can hope that they thought that the extracts from the crocodiles contained progestogens that would suppress ovulation and that the formulation was a crude version of the modern hormonal coil or intrauterine device. Okay, however, this is us putting a positive spin on the treatment. In another case, a papyrus concerned with surgical procedures talks about stopping bleeding using raw meat which would raise alarm bells nowadays due to the very high risk of introducing uh, contamination microbes into an open wound. However, perhaps redeeming itself somewhat, the same papyrus mentions the closure of wounds using sutures as well as preventing and treating infections using honey, which is something that we do even today. The Berlin papyrus, which was written in 1350 BC discusses a pregnancy test. It indicates that the woman had to moisten barley and erma with her urine every day. If it grew, she would give birth. If the barley grew, she would get a boy. But if the erma grew, she would get a girl. If neither of them grew, she would not get a birth. The third thing we learn in relation to drugs and medicine is that the practice of surgery was so advanced that boils, abscesses, and septic wounds were opened surgically and drained by pieces of linen, and poultices were used as well. We also learn that in most cases doctors prescribed a remedy of different drugs, not a single drug. The routes of administration were basically five the oral, rectal, vaginal, topical, and fumigation. Treatments were given in different forms like pills, cakes, ointments, eye drops, goggles, suppositories, fumigations, and baths. I'm particularly fascinated by the practice of polypharmacy and having drug administration routes like those we use today as well as having different dosage forms, which would have required an understanding of formulation science. Moving on to an appreciation of the range of treatments, we learn from the famous Ebers papyrus 
written around 1550 BC, that by then there was a compilation of 328 different ingredients and most of these are derived from plant species to make 876 prescriptions for use in helminthiasis, ophthalmology, dermatology, gynecology, obstetrics, dentistry and surgery. Of course, just for comparison and context, the same papyrus contains over 700 magical formulas. When you look at the ancient Egyptian pharmacopoeia, you find that they comprised a wide diversity of treatments. These treatments included minerals, metals, animals, and plant sources. The range of plants used by ancient Egyptians was very wide. They would use the whole plant or its fruit the leaves, the juice, or the roots. The plants mentioned belong to different species such as acacia, anise, barley, cassia, castor bean, coriander, cucumber, cumin, date, fennel, fig, mulberry, garlic, gourd, juniper, leek, lettuce, lotus, peas, poppy seeds, saffron, sunflower, styrax, terebinth, wheat, willow buds, white thistle, and wormwood. These plants contain a wide range of bioactive secondary compounds that belong to a vast diverse of chemical classes such as saponins, diterpenes, sesquiterpenes, pyrons, isochromins, flavonoids, isoflavonoids, and alkaloids. Students of pharmacognosy and medicinal chemistry would be fascinated by the examples. There's an impressive compilation of the plants used by the Egyptians in the paper by Metwali that we've been discussing and the link to this is given in the notes as we mentioned before. Please check it out for more details. The minerals and metals that we used in the Egyptian pharmacopoeia included antimony, alum, carbon from charred wood, copper, feldspar, iron oxide, limestone, red ochre, sodium carbonate, sodium bicarbonate, salt, stibnite, sulfur, and possibly arsenical compounds. These remedies were usually recommended for local mild astringent or antiseptic action in cases of boils, felons, and burns. Antimony sulfide was given by mouth for bilharziasis. Sulfur was used for scabies, calamine for its soothing effect, yellow ochre hydrated oxide of iron was used in anemia, red ochre to combat hemorrhage, and green copper ore against eye inflammation. Some minerals possessed strong colors and were used for cosmetic purposes, such as antimony and lead sulfides, which were used to produce the black paints for beautifying men's and women's eyes. The green color in eye makeup was mainly produced by malachite. Also, 
chrysocolla and copper silicate was used for this purpose as it has a lovely blue-green color. Many different types of drugs from animal sources are recommended in the medical papyri. Fat and grease from different animals are mentioned in various prescriptions, sometimes for internal use and other times topically as a treatment or as a base in the formation of ointments. Goose fat was a part of a remedy used orally to remove pain and is also used externally for relaxation. Different forms of animal-derived products are also described. So animal products such as urine, eggs, feces, or milk, in addition to animal structural components such as blood, bone, meat, bone marrow, bile, liver, spleen, and the skin were also used. The liver, which is rich in vitamin A, was prescribed to prevent gray hair and to treat night blindness. There was a wide range of animals from which animal constituents were obtained. This included the cow, geese, donkey, man, the cat, pigs, mouse, goat, sheep, the bat, the hippopotamus, the antelope, dog, various insects, the ostrich, the pigeon, the pelican, the raven, the frog, the lizard, snakes, the tortoise, crocodile, beetles, worms, and fish. Beeswax was extensively recommended for use as a vehicle or binding material in various ointments or preparations for application to the skin or wounds. Honey was a vital constituent in about 500 prescriptions and remedies. It was used for both its efficacy and as a vehicle. It was used as anti-cough, antibacterial, wound healing, antiseptic, to fix a loose tooth, and for toothache. Other vehicles used included beer, wine, milk, and water. Overall, as we trace the development of medicine and drug therapy in ancient Egypt, we start off with the priests as the medicine men and end up with clearly defined medical practitioners. We've mentioned the erroneous beliefs about causes of illness and magic. However, it's important to place these beliefs in context. As emphasized by the World History Encyclopedia, medical practice in ancient Egypt was so advanced that many of their observations, policies, and commonplace procedures would not be surpassed in the West for centuries after the fall of Rome, and their practices would inform both Greek and Roman medicine. They understood that disease could be treated by pharmaceuticals, recognized the healing potential in massage and aromas, had male and female doctors who specialized in certain specific areas, and understood the importance of cleanliness in treating patients. In the modern day, it is recognized that disease and infection can be caused by germs, and one might think that people have always believed so, but this is a relatively late innovation in human understanding. It was not until the 19th century AD that the germ theory of disease was confirmed by Louis Pasteur and proven by the work of British surgeon Joseph Lister. 
And so against this background, we can appreciate the value of ancient Egyptian medicine. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Drug History Podcast. We'll see you again next time.